This is Wayne Goldsmith, and welcome to Sports Thoughts. I've spent 25 years traveling the world, working with some of the world's best athletes, coaches, and teams, trying to discover what it is that they do, how they think, and what it takes to be the best in sport. Subscribe to our newsletter at wgcoaching.com to keep up to date with my thoughts on sport. Let's talk sport. It's a big part of our national identity, and that's reflected in sport participation rates for kids in New Zealand. It hovers around 90%, and that makes us the envy of the world. But 70% of kids who participate in sport drop out between the ages of 13 and 17. Well, the video game Fortnite and television are not the enemy of sport. The enemy is outdated coaching, so says sports innovator and coach educator Wayne Goldsmith. He's worked with everyone from the All Blacks to Olympian Michael Phelps, and he's on a mission to stop the number of kids quitting athletic activities by helping coaches see how sport can be more like Fortnite in a good way and that it can be engaging and inspiring and connecting. Wayne Goldsmith joins us now. Hello there. Hello, Jesse. How are you this afternoon? Good. Hey, really nice to meet you, and I, I love what you do, Wayne. Looking forward to uh, finding a bit more about it. Um, is this one of the biggest issues in sport right now, not so much attracting kids to play, but, but keeping them involved? Oh, no doubt about that. If you look at the way that governments are funding sport around the world, they're throwing buckets of money at you know, sport for everyone, sport for all, get out and do stuff type programs. They're all different names depending on where you are. But the principle is the same. Governments are throwing a lot of money just getting people and families out there doing things. So I don't think getting kids to actually be active and be out running around with their dog or on a bike, I don't think that's the big issue. You've pointed out what the issue is. They get into that that sort of danger zone, if you like, 13 to 17. And they look around and, and life catches up to them. I say the perfumes and the car fumes get them, the fumes get them. And they look at, at other things that are being offered in life and think, well, why would I stay in sport? And unless sport's interesting, exciting, unless they've got good relationships, their friends are doing it, well, yeah, why would they bother staying in sport? You say that they're looking at the wrong thing, that organisations that are trying to make their sport more attractive uh, spend their money and their time on the three M's, marketing, modifications, media, but instead they should be looking at what the end user experience is, right? Well, I think so. And, and look, the story I told when I was at uh, Palmy North last year at the IRB's World and Union Conference, I said, you know, just imagine – that at the time the British and Irish Lions tour was on against the ABs. And just imagine that we see the greatest game of rugby we've ever seen in the world. It's uh, the All Blacks win 101 to 100, and, just 100, 101 to 100. And we've never seen rugby like it. And all the little girls and all the little boys around New Zealand are just falling in love with this amazing running game. And they go down to the local club and they walk in and there's some beautiful old guy, you know, the, the heart and soul of sport, those volunteer amateurs, the people that have been there since they were kids themselves and run the shop and 
who coached there and have been president of life. I mean, beautiful people in all sports that are running it as amateurs. And this little boy and little girl walk in after seeing the game the night before, the 101 to 100 game the night before, and they say, show us how to run with the ball. Show us how to enjoy this amazing game. And he looks at him and says, off you go, four laps around the park. Yeah. Why? Because that's what we taught him. That's what we taught our coaches and successive generations of coaches that instead of sport being about fun and relationships and enjoyment, we taught them it's about heart rates and lactic acid and muscle biopsy. Mm. And we've told them that it's about the science, not about the human beings. And I think that's what's killing us. Who is the sport? When we think of rugby in New Zealand, when we talk about the sport of rugby, what are we talking about? Oh, to me, it's it's the it's the end user, Jesse. That's a great question. Is there, there were, was a, a phrase that I used to hear around the, the world in sport that sport owns sport, and this is a terrifying thing if you run a national sporting organisation. But but I don't believe that sport is owned by Swimming Australia or by Canadian Hockey or by Netball New Zealand. Sport is owned by the end users, by the sports clients, by the kids and the parents and the amateur coaches and the club officials, it's owned by the people at the grassroots level because they are saying, look, we want something that engages us and excites us and inspires us. We want something that's going to fit for us in Canterbury. It's going to work in Southland. It's going to work in Northland. It's something different maybe in Welly or or um, in Gizzy. You know, people are saying at grassroots community level, we want an experience for sport that makes sense to us, that's relevant to us, that's important to us. And the way the sports have traditionally rolled out, I call it trickle-down sport, the way that the sporting organisations have traditionally worked is they do some benchmarking around the world. They say, oh, look, England's doing this and Canada's doing this, Australia's doing that. They copy it, they give it a new brand, and then they roll it out from national body through to regional bodies, through the RSOs, RSTs, and then eventually it gets to the club. And sports not working like that it's just not working it's it's really a grassroots up ground swell up it works in the opposite direction sport is owned by the people who are doing it at grassroots level and when you're a child who goes along and and joins a a club or a school sports team what do you get out of it there's some obvious stuff you know fighting obesity and and, and obviously recruiting the next Richie McCaw. But what, what are some of the stuff that um, that sport can teach us? Well, you've got to look at your own memories. If you look at the, your own memories of sport, it's very rarely that you'll go, I remember a season where we went through undefeated and here's the tries that I scored or here's the goals that I, 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 I got or here's the laps that I won, the races that I won. You go back and you'll go, I remember people and I remember that coach. God, she was amazing. She changed my life. Or I remember that crazy day where we went and we raced on our mountain bikes and we all went to the beach and had a barbecue. That The, the, the buzzword, Jesse, really in sport at the moment is called the experience of sport. And what's the experience we're giving kids and families? And it's important because of this. We as a, as a species on the planet, have survived our cultures have all survived through storytelling we're storytellers by nature that's that's what we do and stories come from memory and memory comes from the experience and if kids are going to school on monday saying tell us about your experience on the weekend so well i went to swimming i sat there for two days i raced three times 
We got there at six in the morning. We left at seven o'clock at night. Mum and dad had to pay for the privilege. That's not a story that's going to capture the imagination of your friends, your colleagues, and your peer group. If you're going and saying, man, I love my sport. It's so exciting. It's brilliant. My coach is insanely good. We get to do all sorts of cool things. Those stories are what really makes sport. And what I'm aiming to do is that every kid's got a wonderful story to tell on Monday morning at school, or they've got a wonderful story to tell when they're in their 30s telling their mates about their own sport experience. At the moment, for so many of them, the stories are just about training, competition, talent identification, mindless yardage, grinding out hard work. If you're a high-performance athlete, those things are critically important, of course. But for 90% of kids, it's just friendships and family and fun and creating memories. So how does the sports experience compare to the fortnight experience? Because I think there's an assumption among a lot of people who run sport, administrate sport, administer sport, that um, that kids just don't want to play. They'd rather be sitting on the couch playing video games. But can you blame them, Jesse? Because just imagine, and one of my main sports is swimming. And just imagine you've got a 12-year-old boy or girl and they get up at five in the morning on a Saturday and the house is quiet and they go over and they start up their Xbox or PS4 or whatever they've got and they fire into a game like Fortnite and they're instantly connected to all their friends. And every time they achieve anything, there's a dance, you know, a, a, a dab or a, you know, what's the other one? They do the flossing thing. I actually got, I've got one called a flab, which is a combination of the two for old fat guys like me. But, um, but you know, they're sitting there and they're immediately connected with all their friends. And they're getting instant gratification, instant feedback every time they succeed. And they're celebrating little successes. And the game has changed today to what it was the day before because it's downloaded a different version overnight. And their mum and dad say, come on, let's go to the pool. And they walk into the pool. Coach says, in you go. 7,000 metres of training. Uh, you're going to do five, uh, 500 laps of this. You're going to do 200 laps of that. Don't talk very much. Your face is going to be in the water the whole time. You won't get a chance to connect with your friends. And not only that, sports like swimming, rowing, athletics, all those big-time commitment sports, gymnastics and diving, they're on – the training is on in the morning, in the afternoon. So before school, straight after school. That's the time when teenagers are connecting with their peer group. When they get up in the morning, they turn their phone on. Hey, how are you going? Hey, good. You, me, yes, great. That's when they're connecting with their peer group on social media and through their phone. And we're saying to them, not only are you going to go and do a dull, boring, tedious, horrible training session, but we're going to remove you from your peer group in those critical four-hour periods Mm. a day. But I, I was just joking with a bunch of swimming coaches, but not joking that much. I said, guys, if I was in your position, what about you stop training halfway through in the afternoon? Let the kids turn their phones on for 10 minutes so that they've got that feeling that they're at least connecting with their peer group because if not, they're sitting with their peer group on the weekend and the peer group saying, so what do you do every afternoon? Oh, swim or play tennis or run or whatever it is. Well, we can't connect with you. Uh, we can't keep you up to date with what's going on. We, why the hell are you doing this thing? And unless the kid comes back and says, because I love it, because my coach is brilliant, because my friends are fantastic, and the sport is the most wonderful thing you've ever done, they start to think, well, hang on, maybe you're right. Why the hell am I doing this thing? 
and we just start to lose them. And the easy thing is to blame society and blame Fortnite and blame television. And, you know, coaches around the world, Jesse, are saying to me, oh, kids are different today. You know, they're soft these days. I don't believe that for a moment. The reason they don't want to do it is that they've changed, society's changed, and basically sport hasn't. We're still offering up the same rubbish that we were offering up in the 70s and 80s and blaming the kids because they're not getting it. We have to change. So let me read you this email I just got from Julia. I'm speaking with Wayne Goldsmith, who's got ideas on getting kids to stick with sport. Julia said that she knows of a Wellington school that had only four teams playing football in years 12 and 13, big drop-off rate, and so they asked the kids how they should increase participation, and they said they wanted to play with their mates and have fun. They didn't like the structure of teams divided according to ability, and the management said, well, of course they needed to be divided by ability, but they agreed to a one-year trial of allowing pupils to form their own teams and found themselves with 21 teams the following year. I don't know if that's apocryphal or not, but uh, does that ring a bell for you? Isn't that fantastic, though, that we're saying to the kids, we're going to empower you. We're going to say to you, what do you want from this this experience? And it's a tough thing to do, Jesse, because the, the environment, the model we've all grown up with coaching is that coaches write the program, coaches set the drills, coaches pick the teams. We need more coaches, but we need coaches that connect with inspire, listen to, empower, engage with kids. I, I think that's a fantastic example, isn't it? It's The kids are saying, because, you know, you can have the greatest scrum machines, you can have the most brilliant gym, but if they're not coming, none of that makes a difference. And the only player who doesn't get better is the one who's not there. So it doesn't matter how magnificent your coaching and your facilities and your environment, it doesn't matter how brilliant those things are. If the kids are saying, we don't like it, we're not enjoying this and we are not going to come anymore, then you've got a real problem. And increasingly, when I've just come back from England, Ireland, Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales, talking to Irish Rugby Union, Welsh Rugby Union, English Rugby, uh, went spent two days in the FA Academy up in the, the English Midlands. We're having the same conversations. They're seeing the numbers of kids in the major football codes in the UK and Ireland. They're experiencing the same issues and the biggest pushback are the coaches and the clubs who are saying, nope, it's got to be done that way because we've always done it that way and we have got to move past that thinking. So are you part of this much maligned Kiwi sport sort of mentality that participating is okay and everyone should have fun and winning doesn't matter and you shouldn't keep score? Because I've heard you say, Wayne, that you don't really believe in rep teams for younger kids. Oh, isn't that a hot issue in New Zealand at the moment? You guys are going through that with the NZRU and Netball New Zealand and it's going on here with, with football. But I, I think it's a lot broader than the rep teams. I, I, the, the key point with that, Jesse, is this, is that there's a concept called the pathway. And the pathway was a model that was developed by a couple of very smart, very business-savvy Canadian guys back in the 1980s. And then they sold that concept, which is called LTAD, Long-Term Athlete Development. They sold it to the English. The English went, well, this is great, a solution, a hard program that we can implement which will take kids from being six years of age to being Roger Federer if they're tennis players or from jumping in a pool to being Michael Phelps if they're playing tennis or from picking up a ball at five or six years of age down there in Canterbury to being Richie McCaw. And they implemented it everywhere to the point where they said to sports, if you don't follow a pathway model, we won't give you any money. 
And I mean, there was a, a story that, that I got when I was talking with the FA in, in England just They said that what we're seeing is that there's some private operators going out there into the community and offering elite high-performance football development programs for kids under five. And they're promising that if parents bring their under five kids to their elite junior sports academy at that age, that that's the pathway, they're using that term, the pathway to the EPL. I mean, it's horrifying. Four and five-year-old kids being treated as if it's an inevitability that they're going to play for Liverpool or Man U, Man City. It, it, it doesn't make any sense because when the kids can't even tie their shoes, clean their teeth, they can't spell EPL, let alone be on a pathway for it. But we've blindly followed this mythical, linear, long-term development model from five to, to 25 now for 30 years. And I think it's largely responsible for most of the problems we're seeing in sport around the world. Mm. Is part of the junior rep thing uh, a vanity issue for parents? Yeah, good question. I think for some it is. I, I, I talk a lot about sport parenting, but I don't know that there's a lot of really genuinely rat-bag, terrible, horrible parents who are doing it purely for their own ego. I, I think the majority of parents act out of love. I, I, I think they look at their kids and they go, man, I, I would like to help you be all you can be because I love you with every fibre of my being, my son, my daughter. I think the majority of them are misguided. They've been poorly advised. But I, I believe most of them are acting out of a genuine desire to help their children realise their potential in life and and in sport. There may be some that are like that. I, and you've got to remember that, that people like me, I'm an old fart. I've been around at this for a long time. But for most parents, they're only in sport for a few years. They don't have the benefits of 20, 30 years in the business. And they'll tend to listen to the loudest voice on the internet or the most convincing voice at the club. Mm. And if they say specialise early, if they say, look, if you want to be an all black, you've got to be specialised and playing fly half by the time you're six years of age, then, then parents who have a that, that great desire – to help their child be amazing, the parents will tend to follow that advice, even if it's against common sense. But uh, I think the majority of parents act out of love. Can I ask you what your view is on specialisation? So um, how early we should be um, inviting our children to pick a sport so that they can get better at it early and, and hopefully you know, achieve a lot in that sport? Or or are we better to wait as long as possible before they settle on one? Yeah, look, I tend to think the the second part is, is more the way that I go. I Everyone likes a model. And I'm trying to convince people now that instead of looking at sport as a pathway, look at it as a pool and not just because of my background in swimming, but is to think about, imagine we've got a big community pool. Let's just get people in there, I don't know, throwing the ball to each other, throwing a frisbee, ducking under lane ropes, diving to the bottom for keys, playing with their mums and dads, wrestling with their brothers and sisters, get their dog in there as well. I don't care. Let's just get everybody in this massive pool. And then at one end of the pool, the kids who are in their mid-teens who go, you know what, I want to be an all-black. Why? Because I love the game. I love the game. I love that team. I love the feeling of running the ball. I want to be a fern. Why? Because I love the speed of the game. I love that feeling of, of being with the girls 
out on court and, and the, the ferocity of competition, that's for me. Well, at one end of our big pool, let's have a nice ladder, a really strong ladder for those kids who have got the passion and the drive and the love of what they're doing to start the climb. And then, yes, let's get behind them with sports science and sports medicine and talent ID and strength training and special diets. For the ones who've made the decision and have made a commitment, that's what they love. That's what they want to do. They've fallen in love with the sport and they want to see how far they can go. Of course, let's have high performance programs and let's surround them with the best possible coaching and environment, equipment, facilities and everything else. But at the moment, let's just get kids and families out there doing something. Let's get them active. The ones who fall in love with what they're doing, they'll stick at it. And if they've got any talent, they'll be remarkably good at it. I wanted to ask you about this, a personal question, but you were diagnosed with dyslexia at the age of 49, and I wonder how uh, that moment made a difference for you and, and how it might have influenced what you've decided to focus your energies on. Sure, that's a good question. It's, um, uh, I was terrible at school. I got 121 out of 500 in my New South Wales High School certificate. was always told I was dumb, uh, lazy. I interrupt constantly because I learn by talking with other people. And most of my life, Jesse, I went through believing what people were telling me, that I was a bit dumb, I was a bit weird, I was a bit strange. And I got to 49, I was reading a book with my daughter and and it became fairly obvious that I couldn't read when someone was actually checking me. And through a a series of of exams initially with a GP and then with a psychologist and then they sent me to a psychiatrist, by that time I think I'm really learning, that I, I start to get some feedback saying that absolutely ADHD, I'd be diagnosed with that today. And my wife will tell you many, many times over that she sees that constantly drives her crazy. But dyslexia hit me between the eyes because I write a lot. And I said to the psychiatrist, I said, that can't be right. That's it's not a right diagnosis because I'm a writer. And he said, well, no, you're not a writer. You talk at the page. And I've got this bizarre thing where hmm. – um, you know, after talking to you today, I might go um, 10 things I learned from speaking with Jesse on Radio New Zealand this afternoon. Once I've written it and I never draft, it just comes out as an undrafted, unscripted, continuous line of thought and I don't edit. It's just some reason it's all there. As soon as it's out, I never look at it again and I don't recognize it. And people will often send me my work and say, oh, this was a really good article you did two years ago. Jesse, I don't remember seeing it. I don't recognise it as my own work because it, it's somehow the way I'm, my brain is wired and the way that I've adapted to dyslexia is I just basically spew a whole bunch of stuff onto the page and once it's out, it's out. I don't want anything to do with it. I don't reread it. Um, I've forgotten 95% of what I've ever written. And uh, But you just learn and I, I think the initial response was very negative. I, I remember crying and saying, I want my life back because I'd followed so many dead ends and had so many dumb jobs that I was never going to be successful. I worked in a bank and I worked with spreadsheets and I worked on all these routine jobs that were never going to be me. And it was only when I started to open mind a little bit to realize that people like Steven Spielberg and people I'm sure you meet in the entertainment industry, uh, I was talking to a stand-up friend of mine a, a little while ago and he said um Wayne don't get too stressed about it if it wasn't for mental illness we'd have no comics at all and I, I I laughed he said because so many people have got a similar story where they just didn't fit in anywhere 
where their brain is wired differently, where they see connections between concepts that are not really there. Um, you know, he said, I'm convinced most comics are dyslexic, ADHD, probably somewhere on the spectrum and a whole bunch of other things as well, which makes them such unique and brilliant individuals. Can you finish, Wayne, with uh, one tip, easy to remember tip for coaches and one for parents? Oh, absolutely. Make it about them. It's never about us. It never was about us. It's about them and what they want. If you can put a smile on their face, if you can keep them happy and they come back next week, that's all we need to do. If they, if we do that, they fall in love with their sport. The ones who want to be great will be great. So smile on their face, keep them safe, keep them happy. They'll come back next week and we can all come back and enjoy watching them. Nice to chat with you. Absolutely wonderful, Jesse. Look forward to catching up with you one day. Wayne Goldsmith's going to be holding an event in Wellington in July to talk about how coaches, teachers, sports administrators, club officials and parents can help kids get the most from their sports experience. And the details are on our website. Let me just double check that they are there um, before I promise them to you. Hmm. We will get them up on our website. We will get them up on our website in the next few minutes if you want more information. Uh, That was good, wasn't it? Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear more sports thoughts, subscribe to our newsletter at wgcoaching.com.